Would anybody like to include anybody in prayers tonight? Yes. My friend Betty and her daughter Sandra, her daughter's a, got drug and criminal issues, and Betty's trying to sort them out in addition to sorting some other things out in her own head. So. This is Betty. Betty's my friend. And her daughter? Sandra. Sandra, how old is she? Sandra's probably 40 something. Betty's in her 70s. Oh, wow. Wow. Is she in jail, her daughter? Potentially. If she doesn't show up to court tomorrow or Wednesday, she will be. Betty and Sandra. Mm -hmm. Let's start. This is the last week of Easter? One more after this. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, for um, the gift of yourself in Mass this morning, for your presence with us all this day, always. You never leave. If there's any separations, um, they come from us. Strengthen us in our efforts to stay close to you, um, um, to be one with you, to not leave your side. Um, as we approach the end of this, God, another year, an amazing time. Approach the end of this time together, I ask a blessing on all of us. Um, watch over Marcy, help her recover. Um, strengthen all of us in our efforts to draw closer to you, to, um, to bring to life all that we've been learning in this reading that we've been doing. Genuinely, give us the courage to be bold, to take you to a world um, that's not comfortable with you, lots of ways doesn't want, doesn't want you. Um, and increase in us the spirit of humility, of lowliness, help us to put ourselves away um, so that the offering of our wills will be complete, um, that we genuinely do this. Um, ask for a blessing on Betty and her daughter, Sandra. Um, the reading speaks so directly to these things. Um, tonight's reading particularly, as we will see. Um, what a great mystery, um, why you choose some people and not others, and um, what to call it, the ordeal that people go through when they give their lives to you, the difficulties that makes in their families, um, their feeling of being alone when nobody understands what they're doing. Um, somewhere in this help, um, help console Betty. Um, ease her heart, help her to trust in you, to let go of her daughter. Um, more importantly, maybe um, help Sandra um, open her heart, let somebody come to her. Um, um, bring a word that can pierce, help open her heart, um, and move to you, um, look to you for help. Um, all of us in some way carry these things within it. Um, help us all to find that help in you, um, in everything we do.
ask a blessing on everybody this week. Um, keep everybody well. Um, we are glad to have this time tonight. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, I'm. I'm going to try. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this tonight. I'm going to try to get to Delta Autumn um, because if we can, it means a certain amount of rushing. So I, I hope you will pardon me if, if, if the rushing confuses. Um, that's the last thing I want. Um, but um, we've got to close this book off next week. And next week I want to leave sometime because I want to put um, Moby Dick and Go Down Moses together. I really want to take a few minutes to, um, to put them side by side so that we can see some fundamental things about America, about our culture, and, and fundamental differences between um, the North and South, because the, real, the, the differences are deep. Um, so um, my plan is to, um, is to try to get through Delta Autumn. I think I can do it tonight. Um, and get to, to, to me, the question. Well, it, it's not the, Fred asked a question, um, I don't know if it was this group or in the morning, but Fred asked a question last week about, I guess it was in the morning. Um, even I, I said that one of the fundamental questions we've got to deal with at the end is, should Ike have relinquished his claim on the land, the responsibility? Delta Autumn is going to make, is going to, force us to deal with that question directly. I don't want to actually deal with that question tonight, but I want to deal with another one that goes back to the question that I've been asking for the last few weeks, and that is, can we find Christ in the action? Um, and um, what happens in Delta Autumn, I think, is, is going to bring that to the s surface in a really dramatic way. So Delta Autumn, in some ways, will culminate the movement of the bear, the whole action, where it's been moving um, so I, I want to try to get to that tonight, but um, sorry for this. I'm going to come to that quickly. Um, just looking back quickly, the, the form of the fourth part of the bear, as you know, is a debate, an agon. I, I think I've spoken to that. The word agon is the Greek, um, which means conflict, and it's from that word that we get agony. There's an agon. But, um, a conflict, a troubling between McCaslin and Kaz and Ike on this matter of whether Ike should have relinquished the land. So the, all of part four is a debate, and in, and in some respects, metaphorically at least, a hunt. They're pursuing an end. Um, and I myself don't think we arrive at a conclusion to it, an answer, but that's the nature of the debate that, um, that we're given. Um, I, I said last week that, um, that I think what's at the center of that agon is the act, the, the, the act of reading. Um, that agon underscores the fundamental importance of interpreting, of trying to understand what's in front of us. And to put that in perspective, I think it's important to go back to the old people and the first part of the bear where we see Sam Fathers educating Ike. He's teaching him to see things other people don't. He's teaching him to read differently. And I, and I went through that, yeah? Um, he, he, knows, he knows how to track 
from prints. And by the way, the, 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 the category into which all these things fit are sign, is signs. Signs. I mean, I want to put that out as boldly as I can because there's nothing in the world that doesn't take the form of a sign. St. Thomas would say, a word is a sign, a person is a sign, it's a thing. The question is, how well do we read them? Um, a sign doesn't have to be a sign from God. It's Christ is a sign, right? I mean, he's, a, he's an image of something, and the prophets were images of something. So Sam is teaching Ike how to read signs, images, things. He taught him to read prints, and he got to a point where he could distinguish some bears from other because of old Ben's deformed foot. Um, he reached a point where he could distinguish the differences between a wolf and a panther when the, when, or at least be aware that Sam was aware of differences when the other hunters weren't. He could distinguish the voices of the dogs and he could even, in some sense, tell when Lion wasn't there because Lion wouldn't bark. Um, he got to a point where he could read the expressions on men's faces and he, and he reached what I think is a really important moment when he recognized all the men were rationalizing what happened. You remember when they said it was the colt, that the panther had taken the colt and Despain said old Ben has violated the laws. He, got, he took it very personally. Ike was watching Sam during all of this and, and, and he becomes aware that what was happening was the men were, his word, rationalizing which is what all of us do so much of our lives. We, we use our reason in, in a way that doesn't get us to truth. So he's being educated, and in the old people, we saw the beginning of that when Sam taught him to see the spirit of the deer. When um, um, Walter Ewall shot the deer, remember, and they blew the horn as that sign that the kill had been made, and Ike got truculent for a moment. He, he started to whine because he missed a chance, and Sam said, wait. And they waited for a moment, and then Faulkner has that extraordinary description of the spirit of the deer coming out of the horn, the sound of the horn, stately, unhurried, unafraid, looking, looking at the men. And then as he passed them, Sam holding up his hand and saying, holy grandfather. We get a, a reenactment of that with Ike when Ike returns at the end, in section five at the end of the year. So um, what's at the heart of that, at the heart of the bear, is this act, once again, of reading. How important it is to learn to read well, because so often we don't see what's in front of us. And one of the things that I've been pushing at you is, can we find Christ not in a person? Can we find Christ in an action unfolding? And can we find him in the actual language itself? Because if he's, if he's the creator of everything, the word, it should be an important question whether the words we use are going towards him or moving away from him or what we're doing with the language. You know, we got, I mean, we had a start on this with all the ancient books and they came to a head with Dante, because that was crucial for Dante. Um, and we talked about the curse, and I want to start with there, there, and today, tonight, and then pick up. So let me start there. But I, I, I want to ask a question before we, before we go ahead. Um, a, couple of, a couple of just sort of general contextual remarks before we go through 
sections of section four and five. Um, remember that the, the context of this agon, this debate, is the ledger and all that it reveals about the, the history of Ike's family and the history of the South. And what we learn is that there's a much larger agon going on culturally and we're being made aware of it by the narrative. Um, but um, one of the frames of reference um, in which that's set before us is the ledger. And we know that there are, t there are a number of ledgers. There's the old ledger of his father and his uncle, but there's the ledger that McCaslin had started when he picked it up himself. And, and it's important to recognize the difference because we become aware that things change. They have radically changed from the old days to the new days. That's going to be one of the fundamental things um, that we see here. We become aware that his father and uncle had, um, had freed the slaves even before the end of the war. Um, and one of the questions I think we're meant to ask, um, I think it's on 256. I think, I think you guys are two pages behind me. You, you don't have to find, I'm going to be going through pages really quickly. You may want to try to mark them, but, but I'm, not going to, I'm not going to spend much time reading tonight. What I want to do is just indicate things because I hope it will be helpful to you if you go back and look at some of this. But um, this is just after the, um, the entree in which um, um, we learn emphatically that um, Eunice drowned herself. And some lines down, um, this is what we get from the narrator. The narrator says he was 16 then. Um, and it makes us aware that before he reached the age of 16, he was already contemplating reading the ledgers. But the spirit of his interest is casual. And, and the narrator makes it clear he could have waited until he was old and in a rocking chair. That, I mean, um, and picture this for yourselves. Pick, I mean, if any of us had ledgers like that when we're young, we, we want to just know our family history and no rush, um, we can put it off because there's nothing there that we should be concerned about. You just want to know your family history. <coughs> and, but then we learn um, that he begins to put these things together and he discovers this horror. But here, on my page 256, as a child and even after 9 and 10 and 11, when he'd learned to read, he would look up at the scarred and cracked backs and ends, but with no particular desire to open them. And though he intended to examine them someday because he realized that they probably contained a chronological and much more comprehensive, though doubtless tedious, record than he would ever get from any other source, not alone of his own flesh and blood, but of all his people. And it, the words at some point, I don't remember, but the, the narrator makes clear, what we get in that ledger is a miniature of an entire people. That's his language. It's a, it's a miniature. So through this family history, uh, the history of a people is being exposed to us. Um, but of all his people, not only the whites, but the black one too, who were as much a part of his ancestry as his white progenitors, and of the land which they had all held and used in common and fed from 
and on or would continue to use in common without regard to color or titular ownership. Because remember, it's the land that ties people together. It gives them their sense of unity, their identity as a people. Blacks and whites are united, even if in a, in a questionable way. Um, it would be only on some idle day when he was old and perhaps even bored a little since that was the old books, so since what the old books contained would be after all these years fixed, fixed, immutably finished, unalterable, harmless. That is, they're of the past. The past is done. And we know this from the ancient epics. Remember we've been talking about this from the beginning, that the past seems, from our perspective, over. We know from Dante that's not so. And we know from the epics that's not so, because every epic represents a, a carrying the past forward and transforming it as the poet goes. It's been a principle from the beginning. And we saw that from Dante explicitly, because in the Paradiso we see that God actually goes back in time, our time, and changes things. Because there is no past for God. There is no past. So we have to learn to see things differently. Anyway, Faulkner's got this line like this, um, and it points up the struggle that he's about to have descend on him. Um, the books contained would be, after all these years, fixed, immutably finished, unalterable, harmless. And what does he discover? This horror. Um, Tracy, I, I, I want to take a minute because I, I don't want to go f ahead if, it, if everybody's not clear on exactly what I discovered. And I'm glad to take a minute to go over it. If anybody's had any questions. Uh, no, I got it. I just didn't know how everyone arrived at that. But we did, did okay, you see it though. I mean, he, the, the, descript the, the entrees that describe that she drowned herself on the day, and, that, and if you put the dates together, um, what we learn is. Um, I don't have the dates in front of me, but Eunice, old Carruthers had an affair with Eunice. Um, a, a daughter was the result of that un union, Tomasina. We get the dates of her birth. And we learn that she died in childbirth. And um, what was it, six months after? Um, six months before. Or six months before the death? Six months before died. Eunice drowned herself. So presume, and she gives birth then. So presumably three months into the pregnancy, Tomasina's mother discovers um, that she's pregnant and she knows, or assumes, or has some way of knowing, that the father of that child is Old Crothers. So Old Crothers has not only had sex with her, but he's had sex with the daughter which means his son, that, that is an act of not just miscegenation, but incest. And that his son is not only his son, but his grandson. Um, it gets better. Gets better? Better. More, more intriguing, I guess. Okay. So is everybody okay at this point? Okay. Um, so I have a question on page, our page 254. It says August 13th, 1833, drowned herself. Yeah. Is that not... Um, Where? 
Eunice. Oh, right. That's that's not when she drowned herself. That's in the day. That's the day of injury. Yes. And also remember um, Ike's father's denial. It's really important to see that his father. I mean, his if we look at his father and mother, Savanzo is his mom, and Buddy is the you know the gad about the stud. Um, his father is the one that he said, "What nigger would?" I mean, can't remember the words, but yeah, what? Yeah, who el who the, who in hell ever heard of a nigger drowning? He doesn't believe it. And Buddy is emphatic and said, "Drown herself." I mean, get clear in that. So already we, we're just seeing. I mean, there's so much that's veiled, but it's there. I mean, wait, wait here. I mean, there, this is a wonderful example. Here, here are these words. How well do we read them? I probably hit you guys over the head too much, but it, I mean, but as a teacher, I mean, I'm so aware of it. I mean, working with kids and all of us, you know, and myself, um, just as, as a sort of existential problem that. Generally speaking, I don't think we read well. And here it's at the center of what's going on right now because it's on the basis of what Ike discovers when he opens these ledgers that he's going to do what he does. Okay. Now let me turn, with that just context in mind, we've got these ledgers. Um, there was this ironic comment that they were immutable and fixed because they belonged to the past. But one of the questions that Ike is raising by what he's doing is can he change the past, can he atone for it? Is there something he can do to correct this? Which to me is a, seems to be a pretty serious problem for all of us. Now what I'd like here, let me just quickly, what I'd like to do is try to structure it this way. I just very quickly want to go through sections of four, that, some of which we've already looked at, but see them in terms of widening circles of influence or widening circles of the effects of the fall. You can almost bracket these things because they're spheres of the fall that get identified and distinguished in what happens. Um, God, the slaves, the debt that's to be paid, the allusion to John Brown, um, the, the fact that the generals um, of the southern armies are killed off by their own men seems to confirm this notion that the South is cursed, the differences between the North and South, um, the, and the three races that emerge out of this. You, I mean, you would have thought, one of, the, one of the ironies of this is, you would have thought a war would have brought people together. What, what, what becomes clear in this narrative is we've got not only these two races, but this strange third race of carpetbaggers that is ancestralists without a past, that the war produced this curious anomaly that becomes a part of our culture now, and, and I think partly defines our modern capitalism. And then this sense that, that God keeps trying to work with what we do and we keep failing, and that it ends on these two depressing kind of notes, dark notes, um, it ends with that description of Hubert um, putting together this inheritance, this bag of this thing of um, coins, and then um, beginning to rob it and, and leaving these IOU notes so that by the time it finally gets Ike, 
there's no money. It's, it's, like a, it's like a rat's nest of papers with all these IOUs gone. In, one, in, in a horribly ironic way, in some sense, it's an image of something about the South. And I, and I think America. I think Faulkner's, even though his subject of the South, I don't, I think his understanding of a man is more universal, but cer certainly here in the South. And then that final scene where his wife um, um, tries to um, use her sex to extort from him a promise um, to take the farm and not renounce it. And the last word that we get between them, which to me just haunts, sort of hovers, it's like a cloud that hangs over all of section four. The word promise is the last word we hear between them. As far as we know, it was the last word spoken. And the irony of it, because Isaac is the child of promise. But that word is given a horribly shrunken meaning, twisted meaning here um, in the way that it's being used. Because she wants him to promise that, um, that he'll take the farm. And, and when she uses that word, his, his response is promise with a question mark, because he knows he can. He's already said, I never can. So the, the, the one of the costs of that choice that he made is the loss of his wife. So what we, what we become aware of as we move through the bear, I think I told you this, this is going to be a dark night tonight. We're going to end with Delta Autumn, I think. Um, that if you thought Moby Dick was dark, um, that's, that's where we end up. Um, with this sense of loss everywhere, and, and that sense is just going to deepen with del del Delta Autumn. Winter's coming, the darkness is coming, it's on us. So let me just very, very quickly, um, what I'd like to do is, is go through some of the passages, some of them we've already touched on, um, but I, just to identify them, so if any of you had any problems with them, at least you can go back and reread them with maybe with a little bit more clarity, okay? You know that it opens, so the, the, the most encompassing frame or circle or bracket, however you want to, however we're going to see it, is God. It begins with God. So let me just, let's go to the beginning to take a look at that once more. We've already done it, but let me do it again just quickly. 247. Um, 244, 45, 46, 47, all those. Um, remember, it describes Ike and Kaz set not against the wilderness, but against the land. Um, the, the, the contractual world that man creates to get control and create a life for himself. We, we saw the significance of this from the very beginning um, in the Bible when um, Cain is exiled and um, Enoch, remember, creates the first city. The first city that man creates expresses his effort to live a life of self-sufficiency as if he doesn't need God. So the city has always had that paradoxical character to it. It does here. So not against the wilderness, against the land. And then there's that passage where um, um, on 245 and 6, where Ike says he can't repudiate it because it was never his to repudiate it. 
when, when Ikamatubi passed it on um, and it got to Old Carevers, he was already indicating that he was doing something that shouldn't have done from the very beginning. And then, so right at the outset, we get these allusions to God, um, his presence and um, his way of dealing with this problem. Um, on bottom of 246, um, my paragraph under that says, did own it and not the first. Where is that for you guys? 244. 244? Thanks. Where's the top? So just the sentence above that. And I know what you're going to say, he said, that nevertheless, grandfather in McCasden did own it and not the first, not alone and not the first, since as your authority states, man was dispossessed of Eden. Nor yet the second and still not alone on down through the tedious and shabby chronicle of his chosen sprung from Abraham and of the sons of them who dispossessed Adam and of the 500 years during which half the known world and all it contained was chattel to one city. What city is that? Oh, I think it's Rome. I don't think it's Jerusalem, but... Um, and then Kaz has that um, flip, modern, somewhat contemptuous t way of describing what God does from that point. Held it, kept it for 50 years until you could repudiate it while he, this arbiter, this architect, this umpire, condoned or did he, looked down on, saw or did he, or at least did nothing, saw and could not, or did not see, saw and would not. I mean, you, it's impossible to miss the glibness here and what he's doing it so even though even though Kaz is serious or perhaps he would not see perverse impotent or blind which and he dispossessed I mean we have to hear some mild irritation and I did what and he dispossessed not impotent he didn't condone not blind because he watched it and let me say it dispossessed of Eden dispossessed of Canaan and we're going to get on the very next two pages later when Ike refers to his um, grandfather and the fact that he's a descendant, third generation remove, McCaslin inserts that comment about the sons of Ham. And we know from that story that um, Ham was the one that Noah cursed. So early on what gets injected into this debate is this sense that insofar as we're to understand what's going on here in terms of that Old Testament story, the sons are cursed. The South is living under a curse. In whatever way, this is Cana, this, this promised land that the Southerners were going to produce this fruitful culture, like the Jews coming into the promised land. It is, they have made a mess of it. Um, there is this fundamental sin that puts the whole land under a curse. Um, after after we get these biblical allusions to Eden, to Canaan, to Rome, um, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and bringing us up to America, we get this very brief story of the slaves that they tried to let go. Percival, Roscus, Thucydides. Remember, they try to even pay Thucydides, um, and he re they all refuse to go. They don't want to go. There's this sense of some familial tie holding people there to the land. And Thucydides is the more interesting case because 
um, Eunice dies, it leaves him alone, a widower, and he wants to work, he wants to work off his freedom, only reinforcing the notion that you can buy and sell humans, that you can see humans in terms of their monetary worth. So this, this sense of human valuation in terms of money runs everywhere. The slaves, the whites, it's everybody. And I hope it's clear that it's not just the South in our country. And that whole story gets reinforced when we get the narrative about Ike trying to take the debt and pay off the remaining grandchildren, right? He goes to um, seek out Fonzaba to give her money. He tries to find James, and, um, and you know that finally Lucas comes to claim his money when he reaches 21. And there's that horrible, ironic story when he, when he finally does meet Sifonzaba, when he has that exchange with a husband who is very much like a, a prototype of the modern politically correct. He, he is rigid, um, politically adept wanting to defend his liberty. And the, the last words from Fonzabar are, as I'm free, you know, and it's hard to hear those words without hearing the irony. Ike is going to say at the end, in the end of four, that he says, none of us, none of us is free. Um, that we fought a war for our freedom and we're still living imprisoned. So, so we get the stories of trying to pay off the debt, to use money to pay this off. Um, there's the story of Isaac, that allusion to him as an Isaac figure coming from Abraham. And remember, wanting to escape martyrdom. Um, he, the identification is a thin one. He, um, he sees himself as an Isaac figure, but he's, re he's reluctant to, s to see it strictly in those terms, because if he does, there's that comment that God might not provide the out this time as he did with the sheep, with the, you know, Abraham, so. Um, so it's really important to see, I, I think I mentioned this, this is not like the epic heroes, and it's not like Frodo in the fellowship, because remember, Frodo reaches a point when the fellowship meets, when he says, this is an appoint, I think Gandalf says, or there's that exchange where he says, this is an appointed task, it's come to you, it's so clear that it's larger than Frodo, if, you, if you've all seen that. That isn't the case with Ike. Mm -hmm. This is a human choice. I mean, we're meant to, with all the biblical illusions and the biblical context that's forming, you know, in the background here, this is Ike, Ike taking a choice out of some sense of responsibility himself. There's that allusion to John Brown. You, if you remember, he's the one who led, led he, he, he believed that um, he was the abolitionist who believed that slavery was so wrong that he, he attacked what, Harper's Ferry, or I can't Har remember the Har Harper's Ferry, the armory there, and <clears throat> was caught and, and sentenced and executed. Um, and there's that funny exchange, imagined exchange between Brown and, um, and God. Do you remember? Um, It's all in italics, as I remember. It's on our page, two seventy-one. Two seventy, yeah, two seventy-two. Thanks. Uh, it's oh, by the way, did you guys find that book? Did anybody take or 
mistakenly take home a little book like this, a collection of Gerard Manley Hopkins poems. I thought you were referring to your book. You were yeah. referring to my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suzanne explained that to me just yeah. this evening. Yeah. Did anybody by mistake just happen to take off that, take that book home? It was in, we were, it well, was we're when we were in that other room. room. Yeah. Never mind, never mind. I'm not, I'm not. Um, sorry for the, anyway, there's that wonderful exchange between God, that imagined exchange between um, John Brown, who, who led that attack against the armory there. Um, on page 273 and 4, <coughs> we get those descriptions of the generals and two of them being killed by their own men, middle of 274, so I guess you're 273. And Longstreet, two of Gettysburg in the same Longstreet, shot out of the saddle by his own men in the dark by mistake, just as Jackson was. Two major generals. His face to us, God turns his face to us. What, what he's saying is, are you kidding? What he's saying is, if you look at the circumstances, it couldn't be clear. God has turned his back on us. We're destroying ourselves here. Um, and then he goes on to say, but Ike is, is saying, how else could these men have fought if it wasn't for love of their land? That God had to be there. And he makes this impassioned speech that ends on 276 saying, um, who could believe that all necessary to conduct a successful war is not acumen, nor shrewdness, nor politics, nor diplomacy, nor money, nor even integrity and simple arithmetic, but just love of land and courage. Um, so um, this description of, of the South self-immolating, self, in a self-destructive way, undoing itself in a war. Um, and we get these two descriptions. We've been getting them throughout the, the, the section, but the, the one on 274 and 275, I think, are particularly good. Um, it picks up where the, 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 the sentences I just read a moment ago where Longstreet and Jackson are described as being shot out of their saddles. How else have made them fight? Who else but Jackson and Stewart's and Ashby's and Morgan's and Forrest? The farmers of the Central and Middle West holding land by the acre instead of the tens or maybe even the hundreds, farming it themselves and to no single crop of cotton or tobacco or cane owning no slaves and needing and wanting none and already looking towards the Pacific coast, not always as long as the two generations there and having stopped where they did stop, only through the virtuous mischance that an ox died or a wagon axle broke, that's the South, and the New England merchants who didn't even own land and measured all things by the wealth, by the weight of water, and the cost of turning wheels and the narrow fringe of traders and ship owners still looking backward across the Atlantic and attached to the continent only by their counting houses. What an indictment of the North. What he's saying is at least the South had this love of the land as something, as something committed to a new kind of freedom. And he, make, he makes that clear, I think, in the next couple of passages. That th there was a commitment to this liberty and freedom even if it rested on slaves, it's still this. Whereas the North still had its, its eyes turned back towards Europe and an old way of doing things, the counting house, the money. And those who should have had the alertness to see 
to wildcat manipulators of, of mythical wilderness town sites and the astuteness to rationalize the bankers who held the mortgages on the land which the first were only waiting to abandon on the railroads and the steamboats to carry them still further west and on the factories and the wheels and the rented tenements those who ran them lived in and the leisure and scope to comprehend and fear in time and even anticipate the Boston bred, even when not born in Boston, spinster descendants of long lines of similarly bred and likewise spinster aunts and uncles whose hands knew no calluses except that of the indicting pin to whom the wilderness itself began at the top of a tide and who looked, if at anything other than Bacon Hill, only towards heaven. This is that New England world we've been looking at in Moby Dick. He's saying at least one of the virtues of the South is that it root, was rooted in the land. It had this wilderness. It loved, it loved the land. We've got this perversity here, but there is this love of the land that, that, that distinguishes this country from anybody looking back to Europe and making prayers to God the be-all and end-all of everything they do. And McCasin, here, here, wait a minute. McCasin wants to jump in. And Ike says, let me talk now. I'm trying to explain to the head of my family something which I've got to do which I don't quite understand myself, not in justification of it, but to explain it if I can. Um, 276 at the bottom of the page, the, the paragraph begins, and an unblemished and gallant ancestry. Mm -hmm. What page? 275. 275. Go down. Well, maybe that's what he wanted, God. At least that's what he got. This time there was no yellowed procession of fading and harmless ledger pages. This was chronicled in the harsher book in McCaslin 14 and 15 and 16, had seen it and the boy himself had inherited as Noah's grandchildren had inherited a flood, although they had not been there to see the deluge. That dark, corrupt and bloody time while three separate peoples had tried to adjust not only to one another, but to the new land which they had created and inherited to and must live in for the reason that those who had lost it were no less free to quit it than those who had gained it were. Those upon whom freedom and equality had been dumped overnight and without warning or preparation or any training in how to employ it or even just endure it and who misused it, not as children would not yet because they had been so long in bondage and then so suddenly freed, but misused it at human beings, always misused mis mis freedom. So that he thought, apparently there is a wisdom beyond even that learned through suffering. It's a wonderful sense that underlying our war and our struggles, there is this great love of freedom and equality in our country. You know the, temp the tension between that, that's the democratic Republican tangent, and it's the tension of our parties. But the wonderful phrase here is that, um, is like the descendants of Noah after the flood, that we have inherited this thing without understanding the full scope of it at all. But the amazing thing here, it seems to me, in section four is that Faulkner has laid it out. So, um, here, two going over to when they move to the um, the end of the argument um, on 285, probably your 284, he says, he says, 
And since I know too what you know, I will say now, once more let me say it, and one other, and in the third generation too in the male, the eldest, the direct and soul, and white and still McCaslin, even father to son to son, and he, I am free. And this time McCaslin did not even just no inference or fading pages, no postulation, but the stereopic whole, but the frail and iron thread strong, strong as truth and impervious as evil. Go down. And of that too, um, chosen, I suppose, I will concede. Out of all your time by him, you say Buck and Buddy were from theirs, and it took him, a bear and an old man, and four years just for you. And it took you 14 years to reach that point, and about that many, maybe more for old Ben, and more than 70 for Sam. And you are just one. How long then? How long? It will be long. I have never said otherwise, but it will be all right because they will endure. He's just said that the blacks are superior to the whites because they will endure. They've, gotten not, they've not gotten soft like that. Um, it's, it's in this section where he, um, I passed over it, but I, um, where he says that none of us is free, um, but this is the concluding point of the argument. It, it's I having some sense that, hoping that God will be behind this, that if he was behind Buck and Buddy and what they did in freeing the slaves before the Emancipation Proclamation, God could be behind him, that he's got to do this. The, the wonderful thing, as I started to say a moment ago, is that, is that what we're left with is just how large and pervasive this curse is. Nobody is free of it. This is the modern condition, this is the modern world, and what we have here is a man um, who has become aware of the nature of that curse and doesn't just want to go along with it. He wants to try to answer it in his own way. So, and we know what follows this. Um, what we get shortly after this is not only the sense that um, what we're left with are all these failures, and it's it seems to me it's particularly um, visible um, in the description of the carpetbaggers. Because what the war did was produce this third class of people who are rootless, who don't have a sense of identity with the earth at all, that just want to make money. Their only purpose in life is to make money. And it's almost what it's done is spawned this entrepreneurial class, um, capitalistic world that we live in today, where people are no longer attached to the earth. They, they don't relate to it at all. And think, I, you, I think you probably laugh at me on this. Think about what um, cyberspace has done for us in that regard. I mean, what is it in the modern world that links us to the earth or nature anymore? I say this somewhat seriously. I mean, it really personally troubles me. We, we live in a Gnostic world. You get on the phone, you hear a voice. You get on the web, you see images. You, you watch television, you're seeing bodiless images. <laughs> The body, has, the body has been taken out of everything in our world, virtually, except the Eucharist. God. You have ransomware. What? Ransomware. I mean, you, this, this group of people who, are, who have infected all these computers all over the world. But if you want your data, 
you got to send them money. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. It's a major, you know. Maybe anyway, we're no longer. And it's for greed. I mean, it's yeah. strictly. Yeah, we're no longer related to the land, and this is only going to get darker, as you know, in Delta Autumn, because when when Delta Autumn is opens, we get a description of Ike and and um, <coughs> Roth and their companions traveling 200 miles now because the the wilderness has been pushed so far away from where it once was. Where does anybody go anymore? So. This is where we're moving here at the end of um, of the fourth section. Let me let me stop here. I want to I want to just look very briefly at section five, the last section of the bear, and then look at delta. But any questions or comments about how dark this is? You are all brave to be here. <laughs> I, I remember when we were doing um, the Aeneid, those of you who did it with me, I remember when, if, if you go back to the Aeneid and you look at the first part, you very quickly, if you take this stuff seriously, you know I do, if you watch what's going on with Aeneas, in the opening six books we get his, he's at Dido's palace and describing his adventures from that point when Troy was destroyed and he had to seek out a new land, he had to find his home. So episode after after episode, adventure after adventure, he's trying to found a new city. And we see again and again and again, every city, every attempt fails. And C.S. Lewis said that this was the beginning of one of the great themes of the epic. It's about a vocation. He's called out to do it. It's like a priesthood. You know, you think you, I mean, stop and think about this. Very, not just in discerning before you're ordained. To me, to me, that's the easy part. Once you become a priest, it seems to me the real challenges, temptations, burdens come. <coughs> because at every point as you grow closer to God, you can ask, now, what am I doing your will? Is this what you want? Father said last week, um, I think on, on his homily on Saturday, he said it was Mother's Day and he was being nice, but he was... There was an element of pushing to his homily. If you were there, you know. He was talking about the importance of mothers raising their children to go to God. And he said, I'll excoriate the fathers whenever Father's Day is. I don't even know. But, um, but he said, he said, one of the things that keeps him up at night, he said, the only thing that keeps him up at night, am I doing my job? Am I getting people to heaven? He said, you've got children. I, I wanna, I'm going to get on Father about that line, by the way. You can underline that here. Um, mm -hmm. um, that he said, you know, you've only got your children. I've got 3,000 people. I, I, I'd say get into a family where you're dealing with, well, well but with, with, with um, Betty and Sandra, um, where the birds are intimate and, you know, but, but he said the one thing that keeps me up at night is, Am I, am I helping people get to heaven or so? Um, any comments about this section four before we leave it? I, I don't see it as darkness. I see it as hope. Hope? Yeah. Where? Because Isaac, is, he fights for it. He, yeah. he wants to change it. <laughs> yes. To me, that's hope. That's not darkness. Yeah. He may fail, but he still yeah. tries. Yes, yeah. 
No, I, I mean dark I in the, okay. yeah, no, no, I agree. I actually agree. I, I wanted to do all I could to, to underline the darkness because it was a way of saying, this is how much he's dealing with it. It's not like a glib. But he, you know, look, he looks, he's, he's trying to find out. Yeah. Some people turn their face yes. away. Yeah. They don't look no, no. for it. Yeah. He, he, yeah. he dives right in right. to try to find out. One of the things I was attempting to do here was, was to, to not minimize the scope, the, the magnitude of what he's bearing. He's aware of the magnitude. If we do anything to diminish that, then I think we take away from, from the spirit of what he's trying to do, what he's choosing to do. But now we're going to get to Delta Autumn, and then we've got, a, then we've got a, um, an even tougher think a tougher question to deal with it's I think it's going to go to Jane's point here but any other comments or questions on <coughs> just how broad all of this is or pervasive or how much of Ike's growing up situation really is forming him to be different than a traditional you know two-parent child who has a true mother yeah he grew up yeah you know raised by other people <coughs> right and he's a naturally inquisitive person when, when you said you know something about um, family history you know when you were a little kid or something you know you weren't interested in that stuff well maybe some people are right and he's one of them well but i uh, yeah but I thought what you said to begin with. It's, it's, a, it's a different way of growing up. Yeah. He, I mean, he was formed differently. Yes, I agree completely. Yeah, I think that attitude that he, or the narrator expresses when he says six, seven, eight years old, he looked forward that um, no hurry, no interest, that, you know, that he could pick it up when he was 80 or. But something triggers him because it says that when he, when he goes at 60, he sneaks in, he has some sense of what he's going to find. Something's happening to him between 10 and 16. That, and doesn't it to most kids? I mean, you become aware of things before you can begin to put words to them. You have this sense that something's not quite right. And um, so I don't think it's an accident when he's 16 that he sneaks in and then, and then he gets this revelation. Yeah. But I think you're absolutely right on in that. That um, in our world, we want to make everything right all the time. And Ike is growing up. Ike has, is is a product of circumstances that you can't describe in that way at all. And plus, he has Sam. Um, okay, let's just quickly take a look at. I just I want to touch on two things in five, and I just want to read um, the end of it because I, I really want to get to Delta Autumn. Let, let me just highlight four motifs, four themes, four major points of section five, and I just want to touch on them and read quickly, and then I'd like to get to Delta Autumn because I'd, I'd, I'd really like to. Um, I really want to get to this question that Jane's comment touches on and that I know um, Fred has got in his mind. Four things. One is that it's really clear in section five that the wilderness is always already in retreat. 
to Spain and sold off the property. And there it is again, there's that money. Um, he sold it off and the logging companies and all the other companies that look to profit are crowding in. Um, there's the story of Ash wanting to make a kill, and I think that's hilarious. Why? And there's this, so there's this flashback, this little vignette, as Ike is going towards the gum tree and he's recalling this episode with Ash. Why, do, why does Faulkner bring that in then? I think it's pretty obvious. He, he describes that scene, remember, when he was younger and he just made his first kill and he comes back to camp and Ash learns that Ike has just made this kill. And he's a 12-year-old he's a boy, um, I think, at that point. Um, and um, he resents the fact that this young kid made this kill and he's not ever made his kill. So, and he makes it clear that he's not going to do anything until he goes out and hunt. And Major Despain says, this is on page 309, it's in the italicized section. Despain says, and Major Despain said, by God, if we don't let him, if we don't let him, he we will probably have to do cooking from now on. It's because Ash cooks and he doesn't want to do the cooking that he's, he's going to let him have a rifle and go out and, and hunt his deer or bear. And you know what happens if, if you've read it, it's comic. Um, he, he has no clue what he's doing, none. And he takes these five different grades of buck or uh, shot for rabbit and squirrels and bear and with no sense of order and they, they actually accidentally come across a bear and Ash freezes. <laughs> and, and Ike is nudging him going, pump the gun, pump the gun. <laughs> and um, it, it, it all goes wrong and then um, Ash says, now what do we do? And you, want it, you get this picture that Ike is going to say, turn around and run. But, but what they do is very slowly, slowly back out. But Ash won't let it go. He says, I don't want to leave my gun. And he goes back to get the gun, even though his life is in danger. And at that time, at that point, the gun begins to explode, I guess because of the shells and the pumping. So what's the purpose of that? It seems to me there's a number of purposes. One is that it's, it's a comic reminder of something gone wrong, which was all like, almost like a prefiguring of what was already happening and going to happen because that's where why does he juxtapose it here because that's what he's got but I think there may be something else too um, I mean obviously there's the envy in Ash that this 12 year old kid should have his kill and you know he's the good but I wonder too if there isn't this underlying thing that it's it's as stupid and as in some ways sad as it is because he's never learned to hunt as a black. He always had to do the cooking. It goes back to that line earlier that I read. Why hundreds of acres? Why not an acre or 10 acres? Why not get rid of the slaves and do the work yourself on an acre or two, you know? Instead of, instead of having to erect these wealthy, money-earning plantation, or yeah, plant, on, on, the, on the work that other people do, um, the servitude that they're forced to because they're of another race. So it, it, it's comic and funny, but I just wonder how much of it, 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 um, it reminds me of things we saw in Lucas and even in Ryder, that this is the funny aspect of it, but what stands out is his is, is, is incompetence. He, he never hunted. 
who was always cooking. Um, I want to look at that at the very end. Turn to page um, three. I've got 313. He suddenly stops in his tracks, and, and we recall the moment when Ash greeted him, remember, and said, be careful, they're crawling. And now we, now we know why. This is on May, May 13, 313, in the middle of that long paragraph. Even as he froze himself, he seemed to hear Ash's parting admonition. He could even hear the voice as he froze, immobile, one foot just striking, his, taking his weight, the toe of the other just lifted behind him, not breathing, feeling again, and as always the sharp, shocking inrush from when Isaac McCaslin long yet was not. And so it was fear, all right, but not fright, as he looked down at it. Remember, it's, it's important never to forget, Sam taught him a different way of standing in nature, always, no matter what it was. It had not yet coiled, and the buzzer had not sounded either, only one thick rabbit contraction when Luke cast sideways, as though merely for purchase, from which the raised head might start slightly backwards, go down. He crawled and lurked, the old one. Here it is, the old ones, the old times, the ancient things, the primeval forest, the things of the wilderness that man has lost absolute touch with. Uh, partly, why? Because he's terrified of snakes. Um, the old one, the ancient and accursed about the earth, fatal and solitary, and he could smell it now, the thin, sick smell of rotting cucumbers and something else which had no name, evocative of all knowledge and an old weariness and of pariahood and of death. This is Eden. This is the serpent. Why, if this is an allusion to the serpent and the fall, why here? at this point in the story. At last it moved, not the head. The elevation of the head did not change as it began to glide away from him, moving erect yet off the perpendicular as if the head and that elevated third were complete in all. An entity walking on two feet and free of all laws of mass and balance and should have been because even now he could not quite believe that all that shift and flow of shadow behind that walking head could have been one snake, going and then gone. He put the other foot down at last and didn't know it. Sta didn't know it. it. Reminds me of a bear, that sort of unselfconscious. Standing with one hand raised, as Sam had stood that afternoon six years ago, that means Ike is 18 here, six years ago, so this is two years after the last episode when they killed Obed and lost um, lion. Six years ago when Sam led him into the wilderness and showed him and he ceased to be a child speaking the old tongue which Sam had spoken that day without premeditation either. Chief, he said, grandfather. So he says that to the serpent, the old one, the ancient one. This, this sign of respect that Sam taught him to always show the, the, the ancient things. Um, then he comes across Boone, that he comes to that clearing of the tree and what he sees is squirrels frantically um, racing up and down hysterically, wildly, um, with Boone sitting against the back of his, with his back to the tree, with his gun taken apart. 
Then he saw Boone sitting, his back against the trunk, his head bent, hammering furiously at something on his lap. What he hammered with was the barrel of his dismembered gun. What he hammered at was the breech of it. The rest of the gun lay scattered about him in a half dozen pieces while he bent over the piece on his lap, his scarlet and streaming walnut face, hammering the disjointed barrel against the gun breech with the frantic abandon of a madman. He didn't even look up to see who it was. Still hammering, he merely shouted back at the boy in a hoarse, <coughs> strangled voice, get out of here, don't touch them. Don't touch a one of them, they're mine. Okay, that's, that's the end of the bear. What do we make of this? What do you guys, what do you guys make of this last scene? Curious to hear from you. Jeannie, what do you make of it? I, I couldn't, I didn't get it. I mean, I knew I was sure that it had some important significance, but I couldn't <laughs> get what it was. Anybody? Oh. Candy, what do you think? What, why does the bear end this way? Remember, by the way, remember how it began? I mean, I've used that word a number of times, with enchantment, in some sense. Ike is looking forward to this. It's, he's a young kid. He's in love with the wilderness. Um, it, it is the most important thing in his life. He lives for that moment. I mean, you can't put it strongly. Yeah? He lives for it. You know, and then it ends with old Ben going down and Sam and Lion. Um, and here, the whole story ends with this scene with Boone with his back against the tree and almost hysterically mad himself, like the squirrels. So what do you, what do you, what do you make of that? Like Anything? The ultimate loss, he just had it and lost it. Yeah, yeah. Well, he blamed somebody. I mean, blaming, blaming his rifle, the bits, the bits. I mean, he just, you know, <coughs> it, it, it didn't work out. I mean, it, you know. Two years later. Sorry? Just two years later. Mm -hmm. So, could it be that he, Boone, is um, rejecting hunting by destroying the gun because he doesn't want any more of nature to be ruined than it already has been? Or, I don't know, I'm just guessing here. Is he destroying the gun or trying to fix it? I don't have the sense that he's trying to fix it, but I heard you mumbling. Were you responding? Did you have something to respond to? You? No? I think it's kind of the beginning of the end of the wilderness as, as I, I knows it. That, you know, it's Ben is kind of the last piece of the wilderness as he enjoyed it, grew up, learned with it. The last piece being what? Well, Boone is kind of at the end of his rope in this last piece. Squirrels running around, and he's, you know, and that, I, banging I, on the gun. Yeah, and that's when he says they're mine, I think that's what he's talking about, or, or the squirrels. And if we were, remember back in in earlier part of the bear, I mean, that was kind of Ben's 
Boone's thing, you know, shooting the, the squirrels. And, and the fact that he's sitting there with his gun apart and all these squirrels are running around yeah. all over the place. To me, you know, it, it just kind of marked the beginning of the end. Or the um, end of the end. Well, yeah, I, I guess, well, and I don't want to jump ahead, but I mean, we're, we're going to see the wilderness yes. start to, to move back, right? Yeah. To the, to the point where it's almost not almost non-existent. Right. To me, this is the beginning of that end. Yeah. Some ways, for me, it's the end of, because... The end of the end? Well, well, truly, I mean, that it marks because it's... Because the, the only way to describe it is chaos, the confusion and disorientation that... I mean, Boone was never a great hunter anyway, so he can't, but, but he took hunting seriously. I mean, he was, he wanted, he, he was embarrassed, he could laugh at, he wanted to sleep with lion, because he so admired the strength and, you know, the whole end was to hunt. That's destroyed for him, absolutely destroyed. He's, he's, beat, he's breaking his gun apart, beating on it. The squirrels are, are hysterical, and, and he's going, they're mine. It reminds me of Gollum. You know, mm -hmm. in his last stages, when he's all he's got left, all he's got left in the in at the bottom of this curse is it's mine. They're mine. I mean, it, it's it's a frightening. I, I don't know how close you guys. Wait one second. Sorry, if you've watched if you've watched the Fellowship and you see if you remember the scenes with Gollum, I can't I can't ever watch those without seeing something of myself and I believe something that's in all of us. That deep down, when he's grasping, and the reason, you know, that that what we have in Gollum is an image of that possessiveness that's in all, and we see it work out in the fellowship. It, it undoes everybody. Everybody gets trapped, and Frodo more and more says, "It's on me." And even say, there's nobody who doesn't get affected by it. That that sense of possessiveness, the power. If, if you know the Ring, if 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 in Plato's Republic, there's a, a a section in Plato's Republic where he describes the Ring, Gyges Ring. As from that to Tolkien got it, because in the Republic, um, Plato, Socrates is making it clear that the, the importance of that ring is once you put it on, you can do whatever you want because nobody sees you. And, and the argument is the only reason you don't do the bad things you want to do is because you know that people will see you. So he's, what he's saying is that every one of us has this secret life, this sin, something, and the ring empowers us. It, it gives us the autonomy of God. Put that on and you can do whatever we think. It gives us absolute autonomy. We're free to do whatever we want. When you watch Gollum, you, and what was the, who left in the beginning? Who leaves, has his party to start it all? Bilbo. Is it? Bilbo. Bilbo leaves. He's the one who writes in the, mm -hmm. Frodo's the, am I getting, am I, Frodo's the one who does the quest, right? Yeah, when, when you watch Bilbo in the beginning, I mean, he gets close to the ring and he almost becomes monstrous, he, and he, he doesn't want to let go of it. When Frodo visits him later at that elfin class, and he sees the ring, he's in, he's in what I would call a, it's like a rehab center, it's a, what do you call him when those, Thomas Mann was in it for, Elliot was, Elliot was in one for a while. Like I mean, a sanatorium. Yeah, thanks, sanatorium. It's like a sanatorium, he's, he is, he's recovering himself. Frodo appears with a ring. He's in, he's in recovery. He looks at it and almost loses it. So when Boone goes, get out of here, they're mine. It's, it's like the collapse, the end of everything that has been meaningful to him in his life. And all he's got left is, it's mine.
which has been at the center of this curse that we've been looking at. Every aspect, there's not a facet of it that Faulkner hasn't explored. And underneath it is this possessiveness, this connection to the earth things, it's mine. So he's like destroying it because he doesn't want anybody else to get it? The gun? Yeah. It's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Physically, that is pretty much all he has left, right? Yeah, my own sense is that he, he, he's, I mean, the end of his line was, um, Fred's word, that he's just, he's beside himself. It, my, my assumption is lots of us have reached moments like that or moments close to that in our life that everything we've lived for suddenly falls apart and we can't make sense of anything. And I think this is a scene like that and it exemplifies everything that we've, he's a hunter, he's manly, he's strong. It's never been effective, but he's, it's his life. It's gone. If you live for that all your life and suddenly it's, it has no meaning for you anymore, what do you do? You know? This really points to Delta Autumn. Um, so, hmm? Why and for a time? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I'm not aware of anybody in his life from the reading I've done with Faulkner. It says that he's loyal to the Spain. Hmm? It says that he's loyal to the Spain and cops and divides his So they both passed away by this point, right? Mm, this is only two years after that, and oh. the Spain has sold off his, huh? Oh. Spain hasn't sold it off yet. Well, it said in, oh, yeah, it did. here, oh, in this. But, but this is like two years before. The other piece, right? I mean, Delta Autumn? No, the chapter five. It's this is section five. I don't, I don't, I don't think the Spain is sold off. The it says five. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm looking ahead to Delta. I think it, I think it. It does, it does in five. It, it does in five. With, with him having sold Yeah, it does. They have to drive so I know, far to get but I think in. But you think he's already sold? I, I think there was. I have to check. I'm almost sure in five, it said that the, it's already retreating. I don't think it's as far as what we're shown in Delta Autumn, but let's quickly turn to Delta Autumn. I want to be careful of time because I really, I really, I'm going to just do this very quickly and, and summarize it and get to the end because I want to ask this question. Um, um, I, I was planning to read some passages the way I do, just to get everybody in the book. But let me just quickly, if I can, summarize it. Um, Ike and Roth and Leggett and some others are on the way to the hunting ground. Um, I believe that it's farther because this, I think it says in here that Despain has sold it, so they have. Um, they have they have a farther trick during the during the traveling. As it's getting dark, suddenly the car lurches. And we don't get a clear picture at that point what happens, but Leggett makes these wise remarks about a doe. And periodically he keeps doing it. It's the way men get when they're being sarcastic and flip. Um, it's like a locker humor, I don't know, humor, a locker room humor where you, you've got the sense of men, of male conquest that that Roth has been outplaying so that we even learn later when they get there that, that um, when 
Roth had been sent into town for supplies. He stayed overnight. He didn't come back. And other things are said to make it clear that um, even while he was there hunting, he wasn't hunting. This is so important. Go back to this, because what's at issue here is the old times now. I mean, it's one of the dominant themes in, in Delta Autumn. It's autumn. Spring and summer over. We're looking back to an old time. Ike is older. He's an old man. He's close to his death. Um, he's, he's the only, what's the word? Um, he's the only image of something still remaining from the past. And we get these allusions to the past, but all of them are negative and sarcastic and cynical. Every one of Leggett's remarks is cynical. It talks about hunting does and, and not <coughs> having his mind there. Now, th think about the difference between these hunters that we've been experiencing so far and now. Because when those men went hunting, they left everything. Destemain made a point. They make a point of it here. He brought enough food so that after they ate all the bear meat, they could. That when they went to hunt, they went to hunt. So when you did something, your mind was on that. If you're painting, writing a book, whatever your hobby is, if there's something you do, whatever temptations you face, they've got to be put out of the way then. And it's really clear that Roth has not done that and is not doing it. While they're there, they have this discussion about um, um, political discussions and political stances. All the comments are cynical. And at the bottom of, of it is in older times, um, there was this protective attitude on the part of men, and men towards women and children. But now, um, they put a limit on how many does you can kill because obviously the, the number is shrinking and they need the does to reproduce. Um, and, and we'll learn later when the kill is made, we discover what is it that Roth kills? A doe. He has no scruples because his comment cynically is women and children have been around forever. So what we get is Ike, like in the, in the bear, taking a traditional stance, defending it, as over against this position of the other men, which is cynical, degrading, and demeaning of women and children. Um, so let me leave it at that. I, if we had more time, I would go over it, but I want to get to the end. Um, <clears throat> the next morning, Roth gives Ike um, an envelope to give to somebody who's presumably going to come and pick it up. And what we learn is that when the car lurched, Roth saw the woman on the road. So he knew that she would be there. And what he wants to do is pay her off. Here we are again. Old Carruthers paying the debt, Ike taking the debt you know, to, to find the people and pay off the debt. And, this, and, and Thucydides, Thucydides wanting to earn his freedom, that, that men it's almost impossible for men to see themselves in any other way except in terms of the valuation of money. We're back in the Iliad, for those of you who've been here all along. It's booty and killing people for booty and recognition and reward. And for those of you here, you remember, I think I said, I'm sure I said, that I think the Iliad is one of the most profound critiques of the modern capitalistic <laughs> you know, enterprise that we've ever had. People don't read the Iliad that way, but. Um, the woman comes to Ike, and let's turn to that now because I want to get to I want to get to this question. Um, 
Um, Ike begins to realize that this is a woman that Roth has had an affair with and that he, has, he is, how would you, he's being exploited. Roth doesn't even have the, God, Roth doesn't even have the courage to face this woman. He's having Ike pay her off. And, um, and it's only because of what emerges in the course of their exchange that he suddenly realizes that this woman um, can be traced back to the slave line that goes back to old Carruthers. Um, let me read a couple of um, lines. Um, on my 344, I'm going back north, back home. My cousin brought me up the day before yesterday in his boat. He's going to take me on to Leland to get the train. Then go, he said. Then he cried again in that thin, not loud and grieving voice, get out of here. I can do nothing for you. Can't nobody do nothing for you? She moved. She was not looking at him again towards the entrance. Wait, he said. She paused again, obediently still, turning. He took up the sheaf of banknotes and laid it on the blanket at the floor of the cot and threw his hand back beneath the blanket. There, he said. Now she looked at the money for the first time. God. One brief blank glance, then away again. I don't need it. He gave me money last winter. Beside the money he sent to Vicksburg, provided honor code too. That was all. Her. God, this is awful. There's this sense of honor. I mean, we were back in the Iliad. There's this sense of honor that he's doing what he should do, and it doesn't go deeper than that. Just does not go deeper. As if he could buy her off. That was all arranged. Take it, he said. His voice began to rise again, but he stopped it. Take it out of my tent. She came back to the cot and took up the money. Whereupon once more he said, wait. Although she had not turned, still stooping, and he put out his hand, but sitting he could not complete the reach until she moved her hand, the single hand which held the money, until he touched it. He didn't grasp it, he merely touched it. The gnarled, bloodless, bone-light, bone-dry old man's fingers, touching for a second the smooth young flesh where the strong old blood ran after its long, lost journey back to home. Tenny's Jim, he said. Tenny's Jim. He drew the hand back beneath the blanket again. He said harshly now, it's a boy, I reckon. They usually are, except that one that wasn't its own mother, too. Yes, she said, it's a boy. Down. Turn your back, he said. I'm going to get up. Got my pants on. And he could not get up. He sat in the huddled blanket, shaking, while again she turned and looked down at him in dark interrogation. There, he said harshly, in the thin and shaking old man's voice, on the nail there, the tent pole, what, she said. A horn. He says, take it. Oh, she said, yes, thank you. Yes, he said harshly, rapidly, down. That's right, go back north. Marry a man of your own race. That's the only salvation for you. For a while yet, maybe a long while yet, we will have to, we will have to wait. Remember, this was part of the argument with Kaz. We will have to see, we will have to wait. Marry a black man. You are young, handsome, almost white. You could find a black man who would see you, what it um, is you saw in him, who would ask nothing of you except expect less and get even still less than that. It's a revenge you want. Then you will forget all this. Forget it ever happened. Oh, God, this is... Remember now, this is Ike, who renounced everything, who gave up everything. 
then you will forget all this, forget it ever happened. That he, I want everybody to hold on to these words because we've got a tough question coming up here. Um, then you will forget all this, forget it ever happened that he ever that he ever existed until he could stop it at last and did sitting there in his huddle of blankets during the instant when, without moving at all, she blazed silently down at him. And that was gone too. She stood in the gleaming and still dripping slicker, looking quietly down at him from under the sodden hat. Old man, she said, have you lived so long and forgotten so much that you don't remember anything you ever knew or felt or even heard about love? And she was gone. She leaves. This is um, the delta now, just um, the, in that paragraph with the italicized. This delta, he thought, this delta, this land which man has deswamped and denuded and derivered um, de in two generations so that white men can own plantations and commute every night to Memphis and black men own plantations and ride in Jim Crow cars to Chicago to live in millionaires' mansions on Lakeshore Drive where white men rent farms and live like niggers and niggers' crops on shares and live like animals, where cotton is planted and grows man-tall in the very cracks of the sidewalks, and usury and mortgage and bankruptcy and measureless wealth, Chinese and African, Aryan, Jew, all breed and spawn together until no man has any time to say which one is which nor cares. No wonder the ruined woods I used to know don't cry for retribution, he thought. The people who have destroyed it will accomplish its revenge. Then the men come back and we learn that Roth killed a doe. Now, let me stop right here for a second. and. Ask this. I'd like to take a couple. We've got a couple of minutes for this question. Ike, <clears throat> Ike, relinquished the land. It, you know that it's the central act. I mean, it's the defining act. What it does is um, bring to a point, make emphatic, the importance of our relationship to the earth, to the land. It defines everything. The sense of possessiveness. That's what's at the heart of this. I'm going to call it an epic. He renounced it. He relinquished it. He gave it up. Now here in Delta Autumn, we're, we're moving to a close. Delta Autumn. We only have one more story. Actually, actually, I think it's a hopeful story, the next one to come. But it seems to me this is the darkest moment, if I read the whole thing right. He relinquished it. Here, he's an old man. He's close to his death. And um, he's met by this woman that Roth has been having an affair with. He's asked to pay her off. He um, gives her the money and tries to send her off with this note of hope. You believe and you'll forget it if you know, it ever happened. And then she has those scathing words, old man. Have you lived so long and forgotten so much that you don't even remember anything you ever knew or felt or even heard about love? So, how are, how are we to understand the novel up to this point? We still have another story to go to finish, but up to this point. Um, there's a couple of questions here. Does this mean that his choice was futile and fruitless? So that we come away saying he should have, he should not have renounced it, he should have taken responsibility. She says to Ike, you're the one who she says, she accused him. You're the one. She says, I would have made a man of him. You've spoiled him. <clears throat> so here's this seemingly Christ-like figure who renounced the land, gave up everything. And now here at the end, we're shown that apparently 
it's all for nothing. That the sin has been reenacted, and not only reenacted, but she, she says to him, you're to blame. I would have made a man out of him. And then she has these scathing remark, um, have you, sorry, have you forgotten, old man, have you lived so long and forgotten so much that you don't even remember anything you ever knew or felt or even heard about love? So what do we make of Ike's choice up to this point? That's the first question. I, I, I don't know that we'll get to the, the other one. Is Do we find Christ in here anywhere? Leave that in the back for a second, but I, you know that I want to get there. But what do we what do we do here? Was it does this nullify? Does it show that the whole thing was pointless and Tracy? What do you do? Well, I don't know the answer to the question, but I did notice and I'm not able to find it, but a fairly pitiful um, description of I living in this cottage in town and it seemed kind of impotent you know that he really had could have had perhaps a more you'd rather see him in a mansion no no but um, a more effective way of changing the tide you know changing yeah by sticking to the land and teaching you know his offspring and his family what he knew from Sam and so he would have had that, you know, like that power and energy versus just, you know, mm-hmm. kind uh, of uh, yeah. exiling himself yeah. in his pitiful yeah. existence. Yeah. Carl, where are he you on this? Tra- he was Witness. trying to lead them through example, though. His example was I'm not going to take this tainted land. Look at what I'm doing, live like I'm doing. It's really, I don't ever see, see him saying, look at what I'm doing. He I does it freely. I know, I know. By example. Yes, By yes, example. Yes. That's how you lead I'm only people. saying that because I don't think, as I read it, I don't think there's anything self-serving in it. He does it, he, he does it because he gives his life to it, believing it. Carl, what do you make of this? Futile? Whether, whether or not he made the right decision is up to him. But the result of his decision is that he has left his family line living the same way that they always did. He's the only exception. And in the end, with the, the woman that um, Rothschild, Rothschild, yes. yeah, yeah, yes. The, well, the child that isn't born yet, the, the woman who's who Ike is talking with, and right. he's trying to provide the uh, the payoff. Ross' mistress. Yes, yes. The mistress. Her grandfather was James, Tony's, James. Tony's Jim. What? Tony's Jim. Tony's Jim. Tony's Jim. That's her grandfather. Her grandfather. And this child is, as far as we know, the only thing left in that whole family going down both sides. Lucas has got a, remember, he's got a daughter and. But yes, but go ahead. And and so that's kind of the end of the line for the McCaslins, isn't it? Well, Roth, Roth has got a child now, even if it doesn't well, have his name. But yes, yes, yeah, right. for the McCas because it stopped with Ike anyway. I mean, he didn't produce an heir. Right. He didn't have a right. child. 
So his, his family line is... But he wouldn't have had a child regardless of what happens here with the woman or Roth. I mean, you know that his, when he gave up the land, his wife wouldn't right. commit to having a child. Right, but, but this child is basically the, the one who is the result of both lines and is 50% white, 50% black, however you, want to, yeah. however you want to do it. Yeah. And is there a story about what happens then? <laughs> I'd like to know. But did, did he do the right thing? That's if, the question. If, if the right thing was to help make a change in the treatment of the land, in the people who are in charge of the treatment of the land, I can't see that he did. Yeah. Here's your question, or I think. Well, well I, I think this, this is a moment of realization. I, I think that's why you can't even get out of bed, basically. Because, I mean, I think, I think the, the woman was basically, she didn't care about the money. I mean, you know, this is not the first time that Roth had tried to give her money get her off or, you know, get out of this <coughs> obligation. Well, I think I he's think been she, paying, came, she's a kept mistress, I and mean, he's been paying her all along, yeah. I think, yeah. I think she came basically for her son's, because she was, you know, carrying her son, I think she came for his birthright. The, the, you know, he, he said, tell her no. Well, the no was, no, I'm not going to accept your son as mine. And so here we have, and if you can look at the patrimony of this whole book, basically, if there was anyone who had the right to the legacy, it was the son, right? Because he 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 goes he he goes up both sides of the tree, right? Mm -hmm. He comes straight down from the white side of of McCaslin's tree, and he and and his mother comes down from the black side of McCaslin's tree. Well, except McCaslin so comes through the feminine line. Don't forget well, that. Yeah, but but still, you know, you look at that. I mean, mm -hmm. in most in, in a lot of. Uh, Civilizations, this would this son would be king, legitimate, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and yet he's going to inherit nothing. And so I think I come face to face with the decision that okay, I chose not to play. I took the noble act, but I didn't do anything about it. And as a result of that, we're you know basically at the culmination of the, of the end here. That I'm, I'm, nothing's ever going to change. In this, in this, let this me family. hold on. I, let me wait. I know. I know you want. Hold on. I want to throw this question. I want to throw this question out because this is what we're the question in my mind that I wanted to get to. I made an act of relinquishment. I don't know of any similar act that I can think of in a character. I mean, we can go to Dostoevsky and others, but it's. it's I mean, in one sense, it was a complete. I don't see anything self-serving in Ike. He really meant to give up everything. And the result of it would have been the shack that he lives in, and no child. The line won't continue. But here, but hold on. Keep that in mind. Now, here's my question. The the disciples kept expecting Christ to issue in a new world. He was the Messiah. When he went to the cross, suddenly they were all disillusioned. Because everything they'd hoped for was gone. And, I've, you know, we've been coming here because I've been repeating it. We've been watching that unfold. Everything you hoped for, gone. Again and again and again. It's gotten darker and darker since the middle part of the bear. When Sam, at the end of three, when Sam died and, Boone di or, and Lion died, 
Um, and old Ben died. I went to Christ on this, that we're watching everything that's important, everything, every, everything everybody's lived for, gone. And it's just gotten darker since. Now, Christ is on a cross. He's gone. He comes back to life. But is the fact that he died and left, no, wait, is the fact that people continue to sin make his act futile? Now, I want to put it in that context. Because we've got a character who made a complete renunciation, and we've got a, a story now in which we see it seems to say, because the sin has been reenacted again, that it was pointless. So I want to just, I want to put it in this context. Christ went to a cross to redeem everybody. We know one of the first things that happened afterwards is Peter betrayed him. And we've had a world of nothing but sins since. <laughs> They've been described pretty adequately in you know, section four. Does the fact that people continue to sin nullify, take away the meaning of what Christ did? How are we to look at Ike's act? And I hope, I hope everybody, I mean, I hope everybody understands that, remember, I, I don't think I'm just imposing something. In, in all of four, remember this palimpsest image? That the whole story is overlaid the Bible. Again and again and again and again and again. And here's a man who relinquished everything because everything about the promised land fell flat on, flat on its face. It was gone, destroyed. So now, as before we get to go down Moses, the final story, what are we to make of this? Five ends with Boone. Hysterical. And, I mean, it, it's as clear a picture of confusion and chaos as I've ever seen. And then we get this in Delta on him. Now, where are we with respect to this promised child? Because remember, Moby Dick was Ishmael. Where in our American character, when we put those two things together, Ishmael was Moby Dick, and now a child of promise in the South, when the child of promise comes to this point, when everything that he hoped to do at this point seems to have been futile, because the sin is there again. You're drawing an analogy of parallel between Christ and Ike, right? Yeah, and, and between two situations. Leader, was a leader, had people who really believed in what he said and followed him, and they have perpetuated his teachings. Who? I'm sorry, the Christ, Christ yes. That, I don't get that impression from Ike. Ike was, this is me, this is what I believe, this is the way I'm going to behave, and I'm going to relinquish my claim to the land. I didn't, I didn't get that he was a Sam Father's image, teaching others. I didn't get that people looked to him to you know, guide them at all. I, I, see, I, I don't see them as, as, as much of a parallel. Yeah. As you do. But the only reason for my making the parallel was to ask the question whether or not we judge a person's acts always by I don't know what to call them, empirical results, or Jane used the word a, a while ago when she was making her point. She said he did it, I mean, I was a little bit uncomfortable, but she said basically he did it for his example, that he didn't go on and teach. I, and I, I'm not drawing that comparison. What I, my, what I want to do is focus on this question about bec because we learned that it all seemed to be for nothing, does that in itself a reason for saying that what he did was pointless or futile or fruitless because 
there's, we're making a strict cause and effect relationship there, and I'm not always sure we can. I'm just raising the question for all of us to think about because it seems to me it's really an important one to think about here. I think one of because, the wait, sorry, because very often I know, look at the saints who, who, who die martyrdom deaths. Um, we, I, think we know, I think we know from our own lives, very often we make decisions where we don't have the support of people around us, we can find no source of consolation anywhere. We're alone. We, we read this in the lives of saints all the time. All the time. The dark night of the soul. There are times when all of us reach a point where we're not going to find support from others around us because they're too concerned with possessions, not losing, when what's at stake here is he gave up everything. So and the question that we're left with at the end is be because the sin is reenacted, are we supposed to say was pointless? And the interesting thing for me is, where was Faulkner on this? Because you know that he doesn't make judgments. I mean, he's been putting this stuff out all along. Um, we, we couldn't, at the end of Ryder, I mean, we were left wondering, you know, and we've talked about this in a number of scenes. What do we make of a scene when somebody does this? Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't tell us. He's given us the story, the action, and left it to us. So but he gave us a very big clue. And the clue is that horn. And when he gave that horn to that sure. child, it's like, you now carry this forward to the future. But do you think she will? I mean, she even close to being. And wait, yeah, wait and what about her word? Know that, but that's the clue that you have to imagine that that will happen. What about her like words when Christ she says, "Have you forgotten?" The child, and the clue was, if we keep sinning, but there's always mercy. Mercy being. Mercy. No, forgiveness. Forgiveness. I'm sorry. Who's showing mercy to whom in that last scene? I'm comparing, you're comparing the two, and so I'm saying Christ shows us mercy, like this, this, this horn that this child's going to carry forth to maybe do the same thing that I did, to try to bring people to the realization to do the right thing. Does the mother have any clue of, what's, of what we've learned about Ike? And even if you look at her words when she says, have you forgotten, so, you know, she has some really scathing remarks. If she's going to pass that on to the son. It's hard for me to see this, but I don't. But that's why would he give him that horn that that went back to their very early times in hunting? Why would he give him that? That's got to be a clue. That's the only thing he had left to give. Mm -hmm. oh. And, oh. and maybe you look at that as a really dark thing too. But he's okay. This is the end. I have. Nowhere to go here. Wait, hold on. What, one, of the one of the reasons I asked you guys to pay attention to those lines, he said, go back to the north and act like this never happened. Yeah. That's as close to a buy-off. And her words to me are absolutely, I mean, she's scathing. Is this all you remember about love? So, What else is he going to tell her? The guy's not going to marry her. Well, you could also interpret it as a, this is your penance. Go go up there and re restart restart anew. You got you know, here's your reconciliation. There you go. I hope I hope you all. He's going north for penance. So he's so he's a priest now assigning penance. I hope you all will give honestly. I hope you all will give this some serious serious thought because the whole action the whole action we still have one story and it's going to I think it's a wonderful story to end. 
the work on it. It's truly delightful. But this is a dark, dark time because everything that Ike has lived for seems to be worth nothing. I just wish you would all look at all sides of it, both, both sides of that story, because it's really important, okay? We've got to get out of here because we're late. <coughs> you guys have a good week. <laughs> Things got fired up tonight. <laughs> Marcy's not here. <laughs>